Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who on the surface look totally normal, but underneath the surface, they have incredibly interesting things going on. This is another excursion into real life. Not only is it about a beloved high school teacher who happens to own a lot of real estate, but it also features his dogs barking in the middle of the podcast at various points, his young daughter coming in and needing some attention. That's a real-life podcast for you. With that being said, let's get started. Mike Concilio on Real Estate. Michael Concilio was voted Teacher of the Year by his peers at St. James Academy. In a previous conversation, this beloved business teacher and I discussed his advice on choosing and switching careers. We also learned his secret origin story. That is, we discussed his whole life, from being a kid to a college athlete to now. Hey, Mike. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Pretty good. In the previous interview, I asked for your advice on choosing a career and when to reinvent yourself on what you do for a living, and I think we also got a biography of your life. But we only touched on your activities in real estate briefly, and I was just kind of hoping we could go into more detail. Um, So I guess, I don't know, let's start at the beginning. Did you come from a family that bought real estate? Um... Now, we always owned our own home, but we didn't have any real estate investments. That was never in my family or my grandparents' family or anything like that. So that was something new that that my wife and I started. It wasn't really something that you learned at your parents' knee or came by naturally, in other words. No, it's actually kind of a kind of a funny story. I was working in a cubicle um, doing international logistics, and there was a uh, a lady who sat next to me in, in another cubicle. Her name was Tony, and I heard her talking to her husband on the phone, and they were talking about a duplex. And I knew they lived in a house, and they were talking about buying another part of the duplex. And when she hung up, I asked her all about it because I was completely intrigued, and it sounded a lot better than doing whatever I was supposed to be doing at the time. So um, she had said that her and her husband had bought one half of a duplex, one side of a duplex, and they rented it out, and they were just about to pay it off, and the other side came up for sale, and they were talking about purchasing it, so they were going to use the renters to pay for the other side. They used a little bit of their money, and then basically the renter paid the the mortgage on it, and that was just about paid off, so they had one property free and clear, and then they were going to use by the other side with the renter's money and use both to pay down that so then they'd have a full set of duplexes or a full set of uh, two doors and then they were going to buy a house at Lake of the Ozarks and she said yeah and this duplex is going to pay the mortgage payment and maintenance on our house at Lake of the Ozarks and so basically they're going to be paying for our lake house and I was like that is awesome I want to do that how do you do that I want to go I want to go there really fast and that just I think within like Three months after that, I ended up buying a, buying a full set of duplexes and being the first purchase. Wow. So how old were you at the time? Oh, I would probably say around 26, 27, something, somewhere right around there. Okay, so kind of a game changer for you, kind of a major moment in your life, really. Yeah, a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> for that that part of my life because uh, I believe the first purchase was $140,000 and I had to put $20,000, excuse me, 25% down. So, I mean, it was, it was well over $30,000 that I had to write a check for and that was, at the time, pretty much all I had. So I was kind of all in on this thing 
And if it didn't work, I was going to lose all of my lifetime worth of savings. So. Okay, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into it this at some point, but I always kind of feel whenever somebody explains what their job is, uh, in this case, buying a house, I think we always kind of make it sound kind of easy. Oh, well, we just put some money down and then we collect rent. And I always feel like everything has got about 36 hidden moving parts. Um, and so it was a big risk for you. Uh, you probably just stumbled into some things right off the bat where you just realized, hey, I, I didn't think about this, I didn't think about that. What were some of the things that just hit you up front? Oh, I didn't think about this, I didn't think about that, once you were in it. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna make me sound really stupid, but um, the fact that I had no idea how to manage the property and I was planning on being the property manager, but I had no idea what that looked like. I had no legal documents or documentation to back that up. I'd never run a credit check on somebody, so I didn't really know exactly what I should be looking for, what would be a good tenant versus a bad tenant. I thought, you know what, I'm pretty good at reading people, so in a 15-minute conversation, well, in a 15-minute conversation, you can get the wool pulled over your eyes pretty quickly, mm. and it can cost you quite a bit of money, which the very first renter, they paid me a down payment, and. Um, the first month's rent and I never saw another dime out of them from there <laughs> and so I got to make those mortgage payments and that was a pretty good lesson to learn early but um, yeah so that would be something I think I would have hired a property manager right away if I could redo it if you could go back in time yeah for sure you know sometimes paying a professional to do it is a lot cheaper than screwing it up three times and then figuring it out the fourth time or the second time or whatever um, I think it would have been you know, it, it would have cut into some of the costs, some of the, the net income, but overall it would have uh, it would have definitely generated more revenue and more consistent renters. Just to clarify things for listeners, um, what exactly do you have to do if you don't have a property manager? And if you do have a property manager, what can the property manager do for you? Um, all right, so basically what the property manager does is he or she finds a tenant to rent, they run the credit checks, um, they change the filters. If there is something wrong with the property, if there's a, a window breaks, the property manager gets called. Now, I only get called, since I'm a property manager, I only get called um, if a fix or a repair is over like $500. So if there's a repair, like to replace the, um, air conditioning unit, they'll call me and ask me for, you know, do you have somebody you want to do this, blah, 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 blah. But everything else is just done basically for me. They take 10% of my revenue. So if rent is $1,000 for this unit, they take $100. I only see the 900 and then minus any other expenses, but they make sure that the yard is cut. If there's a violation from the city, the property manager takes care of that. They take care of late fees. They take care of um, getting it cleaned, painted, and ready for the next tenant. They take care of the marketing for the unit, and uh, yeah, they take care of a lot, to be completely honest with do, you. Do you do anything? Do you have a property manager? I try not to. I really, no, I, I, I try to save the money and look for the next property to buy. That's, that's basically, and I file, file my taxes and make sure all my documentation is, is properly tracked and making sure that um, the revenue is properly um, being accounted for, making sure that the, the house is being maintained properly. If, you know, I have records in there and say it's, you know, hasn't been painted in eight years, well, the paint might not be chipping, but I might need to go drive through and see like, hey, before we get a bunch of wood rot or, mm. um, 
a lot of other different things, then maybe we need to make sure to look at the roof, clean the gutters, those types of things that, that our property managers really, it's not their investment, so they're not going to be looking for those as much as they're looking for the rent check because that's where they're incentivized to, uh, um, to be. When something breaks then, who gets called? You or the property manager? Property manager gets called first. Okay, so if there's something wrong with, I don't know, the plumbing, the electricity, the cement, uh, if uh, there's a hole in the roof, just anything like that, that's pretty much on the property manager. Yes, sir. The good property managers, yeah. Okay, okay. I might be getting ahead of the story just a little bit, but um, how many houses did you have before you actually got a property manager? So, let's see. I was at five. And it was a nightmare. <laughs> I was mismanaging five properties all at the same time. I, I'm just thinking there's always something that's breaking in a house all the time. And so I'm also thinking that at certain points, these things are breaking at 3 a.m. And then they call you at 3 a.m. Yep, that absolutely happens um, when you're on vacation over the weekend. If I was to travel outside of the country, I had to, um, and I wouldn't have cell service. I remember my wife and I went on a cruise one year, and there was no cell service on this cruise. But yeah, I, there was, but you had to pay an astronomical amount of money. Um, so I gave, um, I believe, my brother the contact information. I had to contact my renters via email, phone call, and with a letter, and tell them that he would be the emergency contact if anything were to go wrong, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, lots of calls in the middle of the night, lots of texts, just constantly, constantly dealing with problems. And at the time, I didn't have a whole lot of money or a lot of cash flow. Mm -hmm. Basically, all the money that I was making was going back into mortgage payments, into bills, into utilities, into repairs. And so anytime, let's say the toilet clogged, now the, the property manager calls the plumber, it's 60 bucks, and that just comes out of my check at the end of the month. But then it was, nope. I need to drive, you know, after teaching all day, going to football practice, then it was my job to get in my car, drive down to Ottawa or Lewisburg or Liberty or wherever it was, and I was the plumber, and I had to try to figure that out. So um, it's opened up a lot of time. time okay. Time has been... What was the farthest place that you had to drive? I mean, compared to here, like how many miles or minutes away? Uh, about an hour. So you would teach all day, do football practice, and then have to drive an hour one way, fix whatever it was, if you could fix it, and then make it home. Yeah. I am thinking that you probably didn't necessarily get a lot of sleep. Yeah, it, it wasn't very fun. <laughs> okay, and so then I think people sometimes have this stereotype that if you're a landlord, you just must be absolutely rolling in the dough, luxuriating in it, like Alex Keaton on Family Ties, sleeping naked in it, uh, you know, just being filthy rich, essentially. Um, how much per house uh, in a good month, if there's no repairs, maybe would you be clearing? Um, it, you know, kind of like one of the general rules based on the... the I, and I don't buy the $300,000 um, properties or a lot of the things that you'd see in Johnson County. Um, some of mine are in smaller towns um, with a demographic that rents more. Um, some of it's due to the types of jobs that are there. If it's like a distribution facility or it's close to a highway or close to a college, um, just good rental communities. Um, Usually it's about somewhere between two and three hundred dollars per door. Okay, that would be the cash flow that, that I try to look for. All of that work for maybe clearing, netting two or three hundred dollars a month. 
Yeah. Per door. But so then if you yeah. have six properties, multiply by six and that starts looking like right. more fun. Then like, yeah. maybe twelve hundred to fifteen hundred, but potentially it's just a colossal amount of work just so that you can maybe pick up an extra one thousand to one thousand five hundred per month. Right. Gosh, you could almost I don't know, get a job at Applebee's or something like that, or I guess these days do DoorDash and make twenty dollars an hour during peak hours and and uh, you know, maybe make that rather quickly. Sure. Now, there are some other ways to make money inside of real estate as well, not just on the cash flow. Okay. Okay. And we'll, we'll kind of get to that. So you have this first house. Uh, how did the second house come about? Second, third, fourth, just wherever you think is an interesting story. Okay. So the first house was, um, it was a set of duplexes and it, um, it was in foreclosure and there were about 10 or 12 bids on it. We ended up um, getting the getting the highest bid on it and I was kind of surprised. I didn't. It was the first one that we put a bid on and we got the first one and I was like, oh crap, I, I don't know that I was really ready for it. I thought I was just kind of dipping my toe in the water and we ended up getting it. And then the first thing I thought was like, well, there was 12 other bids on it, so we overpaid. Now I would say, no, we got a fantastic deal. But at the time, you know, if you're the highest bidder out of 12 other bidders, your natural thought is like, oh, we paid too much. We could have offered less, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was the first two. And then um, my realtor had um, him and another partner decided to sell one of their other duplexes. And he offered it to me knowing that I was just getting into real estate. And so um, the price was right. I thought the cash flow was right. Bought that property. Um, and so then I had four doors and that was the one that, that was the one that chased me out of property management and just about basically made me a tired landlord. Didn't, I did not want to be a real estate investor after having this, this was a, a lower income property. It was a house that was over a hundred years old. It was, it was a, instead of being like a side by side duplex, it was a house that was actually split into two apartments. So it was right down the street from college. So it was good for college renters. Um, but it had two bedrooms, one bath down on the lower level. And then you walked up to a set of stairs and you got two bedrooms, one bath up top. And it just, it always had problems. It, it rent was super cheap. Um, and it cash flowed pretty well, but it was really hard to keep tenants in there. It was really mm. hard to find qualified tenants. It was, it was just kind of a nightmare and things would be breaking. The house is over a hundred years old. It wow. has, maybe it has termites, maybe it has water damage, maybe it's been leaking, for, you know, whatever reason. And the fact that it had major construction. Um, so there's, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went into it and um, that house drove me crazy. It drove me absolutely crazy. Um, yeah. Gosh. Well, I'm just wondering what made you buy it in the first place. I based, I, I based it off of the numbers. So okay. the numbers worked out, but I should have looked at probably the entire investment together. Like, is this a property that I want to manage? Is this, is this property going to be something that is going to rent out for 12 months out of the year? Well, it was right down the street from a college. So it didn't really rent out for 12 months a year, it rented out for nine months a year. So if you didn't have a tenant in there by, um, August, you might not have another tenant f until second semester mm. into January. Um, that was just kind of how it went. And then January, they only wanted to sign a, 
you know, a four month lease. They didn't want to pay for it over the summer. They wanted to be out of there. And so it's just kind of, it just wasn't very well thought out by me when I purchased it. And I should have done a little bit more research. I also kind of wonder if you're renting to college students, there's just colossal turnover. And I've got another friend who, uh, he actually likes to rent to fraternity guys because he crunched the numbers. And he said, I was a fraternity guy. I was in one of the wild fraternities. I know exactly, monetarily, how much damage we can do. And so from that standpoint, he just factored it into the rent and uh, things worked out, I guess, okay, but he is kind of limited. You can't just charge whatever you want for rent. Sure. You also have to pay attention to, well, what are all the other houses going for? Uh, I guess I'm just thinking if you have three different tenants per year, uh, you're just increasing your odds of people destroying things. Versus if you have one good tenant for 10 years. Yeah, I would much rather have the one good tenant for 10 years. Even if it means I can't increase my rental amounts as much because you don't want to raise your rent so much that you chase off um, a good renter, I would much rather have one. I've just found that it is really expensive um, for tenant turnover, for missing um, rent payments, for, I mean, basically if, if a family lives in a house for three or four years, you can try to clean the carpets, but a lot of the times, you're gonna be replacing carpet, you're gonna be painting the whole interior, and a lot of that's just wear and tear. The, the renters don't pay for wear and tear, they pay for damages. So if there's a hole in the wall or the window's broken, they're gonna pay for those repairs, but they're not necessarily gonna pay for, you know, because their kids put a handprint on the wall. Um, that that falls on the landlord, and, and it should. Okay, was there a moment when you woke up in this situation and just said, that tears that I'm definitely getting a property manager, or was it really more of a slow dawning realization? No, it was, yeah, it might've been a slow dawning. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, I thought about it for a while. It's just kind of dri driving me crazy. And I actually um, emailed my, the realtor that, that helped me buy these things. I emailed him and I said, hey, if you think it's a good time to sell, I think I'm done with, with real estate investing. I can't do this anymore. This is not, this is not for me. It's not what I envisioned it as. Like I'm, I suck at it. The properties are, you know, trashy. I don't want trashy properties. I want good places for these guys to live. I don't want to, you know, rent to a person in a place that I wouldn't personally want to live. And I don't have the time. I was running out of time to manage it the best that I could. And I didn't want it. And so I was like, let's just, let's just get rid of them and see what, and he said, you know what? I've started my own property management company. How about I just manage them for a couple months? We'll see how that transition oh, that's goes. Smart. And then and then you'll profit a little bit. I'll understand. We'll make sure to clean up the renters, get the stuff, you know, fixed up that needs to be fixed up. Um, and I had just dealt with one of those, the top and bottom. I was renting to one family. Um, and they just completely trashed the place. After I had redone everything, they lived there for a year and everything needed to be replaced. Like it was the most, I've never seen so many cockroaches in my life. Mm. Like, oh, it was just, so everything needed to be basically gutted and started over. And it was, at this point, it was just too much for me. Um, and so he said, let me take it over. He got a company, got a bid. We fixed it all up. It looks beautiful right now, better than I would have ever made it if I ever had the time to do it. Um, he got one set of renters out of there that wasn't holding up their end um, without legal, just mutual, you know, what's good for them, what's good for us, what's good for him. Um, and then another family ended up moving out when they found out that there was new management in place and they were weary, weary about that, um, which people tend to be. 
and just uncertainty. And then they got some new renters in there. And since then, it's been very low turnover. It's been very great. He does a wonderful job. And after that, I was like, all right, let me know when we can buy another one. And that was probably, you know, six months down the road after I saw what it could be like. He was making money. I was making money. The renters were happy. The properties were were better kept than they'd ever been before. It's just wins all over the place. Everybody was winning from it. Just day and night. And then you probably picked up a lot of free time as well. Oh, yes. And I got better sleep too. What did you do with all that free time? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea where that time went. I feel like we maybe have covered all the advantages to getting a property manager. And to, just to be clear, you would have gotten a property manager on the first property if you would have had the chance. I should have, yeah. And that's not for everybody. Some people, like if I owned a duplex and I lived on one side, I would totally manage the other side. That's a whole different type of ballgame. If I was in... Um, an entrepreneur that worked for myself and I had freedom to drive an hour this way or I could work in my car making phone calls while I'm, if I could multitask some of that stuff, kind of like Mr. Sapala does, you know, he's a really good multitasker. Um, if there was something where my schedule wasn't so dictated to where I've, I'm teaching intro to business second hour at 9.35, I'd better be there or else I'm going to probably lose my job. I can't be fixing a sink in Ottawa. So if I have more flexibility with my career, then in proximity. So yeah. it, all, it all comes down to time and that type of stuff. But yeah. I really like having a property manager, especially when you get up to the number that I would eventually like to have. It would be too much for me. Okay. So so just to keep it fair, to keep it objective for people, what would people say are the disadvantages to having a property manager? Well, they're going to they're going to take 10% right out of the right out of the kitty before you even get it. So that's going to be monetarily, but you just have to build that into the purchase price. You know, when you're crunching numbers there, you just say, well, if it's a thousand dollars rent, you're only going to be getting, charging 900 because they're going to take 10% off of the top. Um, you don't have a lot of interaction with the property. So you're kind of set apart. It's kind of like being a silent investor into mm. a business Got it. where they don't really want you emailing them <laughs> every day to check on things. And they don't want to hear your suggestions or a promotion you should run. They want you to kind of, you sit on the sidelines and if there's an issue, we'll tackle that together. Right. I mean, just because I, who knows, if I own one share of Tesla, I'm probably not going to get Elon Musk emailing me back like every five minutes or something like that you know like does it come in green and elon goes well yes of course we can get it to you in green that would be absolutely fine <laughs> he's got other things to do basically right so so you wind up maybe kind of in that situation you're just a little bit more removed from it lose a little control lose a little uh, revenue okay okay now, i mean for some people some of those things would be advantages like i don't have to control it and i free up my time and uh, all of the headaches go to somebody else. But I, I just kind of wanted to get both sides yeah. on the whole property management thing. What is the craziest thing that has ever happened to you as a property owner? So there's been a couple very interesting ones. One of them was, um, so I had some not so friendly tenants at one point and there was crap all over the yard, just trash and dolls and toys and stuff everywhere and so I went with a truck and a trailer because I had gotten a uh, violation from the city that said they were going to charge me 150 200 bucks whatever it was if this stuff was not if the yard was not cleaned up and cut by a certain day and they give you like a really friendly deadline like 48 hours or something <laughs> right so I have a truck and a trailer I go down there um, and I start just 
chucking this stuff, which to me, it all looks like trash, right? It all looks like trash. The renters who owe me money, by the way, they don't come out and talk to me. They didn't answer the door when I knocked. Mm. They didn't answer the phone when I asked them to clean up the yard, so on and so forth. So I let them know that I was going to be throwing this stuff away. So I start throwing all this stuff into the truck and the trailer, and I'm going to haul it off to the dump. And again, it looks like trash to me. Well, lo and behold, the cops show up. Oh, great. And the cops come up to me and ask me, sir, who are you? What are you doing? This, that, and the other thing. Like, I was doing something wrong, and I was like, well, I own this house. I have this letter that says this needs to be cleaned up. I'm trying to clean it up so I don't get a $200 city violation. And they're like, have you cleared it with the people that live here? I was like, sir, it's, it's trash. I was <laughs> just throwing the trash away. And he said, well, we got a call from the tenant here that says you are throwing away their stuff without their permission. And I said, but literally they're in trash bags. Like, this is trash. And he said, I know, but you can't do it. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So <laughs> the police are telling me that I can't throw away the trash, but the city is fining me for not throwing away the trash. And I'm sitting there stuck like, I have no idea what to do. I, I don't know. He said, well, you could, you could pay the fine and then take them to court for the fine. I was like, well, they haven't paid rent. They're not going to pay the fine or show up to court either. <laughs> like, that's not going to work. So that was, again, that was a very frustrating thing. But again, if I would have managed the property better, I probably would have vetted the renters better, paid more attention to what they were doing. But I don't, I, I'll take the blame on that one. How do you get out of that catch-22? Because, you know, part of City Hall is telling you don't pick up the trash. And the other part of City Hall is saying pick up the trash. And either way, you get fined. Um, that seems like a sweet deal for them. Yeah, I thought so. Too. I thought just having somebody else pick up after them was going to be a win for them, but apparently not. Apparently I was throwing away prized possessions. So. I, how did the story end? I, how did the trash get off of the yard and City Hall get off of your back? After that, I just said, okay, fine. Called the lawyer, filed for, um, started the eviction process. And after we started the eviction process, um, it was about a week later, they decided to just say, okay, we'll, we'll get out of here. Did they, they didn't pay, but... Yeah, so I had to pay $500 just for a lawyer to send them some paperwork that said we were going to file for an eviction if you do not get out in whatever it was, five days to pay rent or quit or two weeks or whatever the, the legality of it was. But, uh, yeah. So they left. Did they ever pay you the back rent? No. And did they pick up the trash bags? No. So I, got who, to, I still got to do that. You still got... But did the cops show up then and say, hey, these trash bags on your property, they have to stay there? They did not. However, there is a law, and I could be wrong, um, there was one tenant situation where they left a bunch of stuff inside, and legally, I had to hold on to their stuff. This was not trash. Like, they had tools and ladders, and it looked like a bed, and it looked like they just kind of left in a hurry for some reason. They, paid, they were all paid up, but I had to actually store their... Um, I'd pay for storage so I could store their oh stuff God. for, I don't remember if it was 30 days or 90 days or something like that. So I had to load up all, load up all the stuff, take it to a storage unit, pay for a storage unit, put the stuff in there. Then once the time frame was up, go back, load it up from the storage unit, take it to the trap, take it to the dumpster, took it, took a lot to goodwill. Um, Catholic Charities, that type of stuff. See, I, I want to say, I've known you for quite some time, and I think that in your business interactions, you're always aiming for the win-win. You know, I, you... I think that's the best way to operate a business. They honestly. win, and you win. Mm -hmm. Both parties win. And 
I guess if I were as idealistic as you, I would be perpetually surprised by people on the other side who are treating this like a lose-win. Like you lose, they win. Right. Um, have you found yourself surprised by this kind of behavior, or has this sort of darkened your view of human nature at all, or what has this done to you? No, I don't really think it's darkened anything. I mean, you know, some people go through different things, and that's what I've kind of learned. Like, there were some people that had deaths in the family. There were some people that had um, some situations where um, they were on disability, and they were filing for disability, and the state wasn't granting that, and I saw it from um, from that aspect, and I felt very poor. I tried to work with um, that gentleman, and he was a fantastic tenant, but there was one point where he was like six months behind on rent, but I couldn't necessarily, I mean, he was a great guy. Um, I've seen, you know, illness, I've seen a lot of um, separations between family, a lot of different things go on, and I think a lot of people just a lot of people have some stuff going on and sometimes they need a break and and I've seen awesome situations where giving somebody a break on you know rent or not kicking them out or not filing for eviction or working with them on a down payment because they just went through some sort of major life thing like I've seen some really really great things from it too so but unfortunately there's some there's some jerks out there as well that just try to take advantage of people that are maybe maybe a little too nice how many uh, fingers would you need to count uh, in order to determine bad renters versus good renters? Um, oh, I would say from my experience, again, I was a rookie property manager, but probably three or four good renters for every one bad renter. That's not terribly bad. Oh, but the bad ones are really bad. The <laughs> bad ones are worth like five bad ones sometimes, yeah. Uh, have you just heard the lamest excuses possible from oh people my. as to why they can't pay rent? Would oh you gosh. care to tell us a story? There was a lady who... <laughs> I, I mean, I really hope it's not all true because I, I can't imagine, but grandma died, grandpa died, other grandma died... Dad died, mom died, sister died, aunt died, uncle died, like everybody. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this lady's completely full of crap. Like, there's no possible way. But if so, I'm the biggest jerk in the world. But her dad had already died, and then she couldn't pay rent again because her dad died. And I was like, hold on a second. Your dad died like 18 months ago. And she was like... Yeah, I lied about that. <laughs> and then she sent a picture of her dad from the funeral ceremony, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I don't need, I don't, I don't need this kind of verification." You know, I just she just, sent just... you a photo of an open casket of her father. Yeah. And said, "Can I get a break on rent?" Yeah. And so, what did you text back? <laughs> I like threw the phone out of my hands when I saw it because I was so shocked and yeah. Um, anyway, it, the relationship didn't work out between us, so that yeah. Well, we, but it was unfortunate that you know she lost so many family members. We um, we wish her the best, and hopefully she won't go to any countries where there's a plague or anything like that. Um, what do you think is the smartest thing that you've ever done? with money, uh, especially concerning real estate? I honestly think the best thing to do with real estate... 
Sorry for the interruption. Before Mike tells you what he thinks the smartest thing to do is, I have to mention that his daughter was needing a little bit of attention, and so I had to cut a few parts out. But Mike essentially said that the smartest thing that he felt he ever did when it comes to real estate is get a property manager. Now back to Mike. What I really look for in a property inspector. How, how do you know a property inspector is good before you go out there and get a property inspector? I don't know. <laughs> I think the best way to do it is um, talk to real estate agents because real estate agents tend to use refer property inspectors quite a bit and I don't want somebody that I've only worked with one time um, real estate or, or realtors will you know if they keep hiring the same person oh yeah he's done like 300 inspections for me that tells me he's been doing something correct. okay he's been doing something right so I'm gonna go find somebody that has a lot more knowledge and experience in with this person than just one Google review or okay. the cheapest price maybe gotcha so maybe being around for a little while, who really knows? Or just uh, the recommendations and advice of other people who are in the real estate world. In that industry, for sure. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, fair enough. Uh, hands down, what do you think is the biggest potential problem with owning real estate? The biggest potential problem? Um, or actual problem, either way? I mean... Biggest headache, biggest concern, biggest thing that a person should have their eye on? Um, What's the thing that can sink the ship? Staying, staying within the law, the, the tenant law, um, tenant landlord law, making sure that all of those things are, you're keeping a habitable place, you're keeping a safe place, you are, you know, following the, you have to have a certain amount of smoke alarms, you have to have, you know, carbon monoxide detectors, fire extinguishers, all of those types of things. And then just making sure that all of your maintenance and everything on the, I mean, accidents are going to happen, but the last thing you want is for one of your tenants to get injured on your property and right. a lawsuit to happen. Right. I would never want that to happen. That would be terrible. Right. Um, but it has happened before and people have lost a lot of things before. And, uh, yeah, that would be, that would be something that I would worry about, but that's, again, I, I would live in, in all of the places that I own, so I would I'd treat them like I would live in there, and so I don't want any of that stuff, any sort of deferred maintenance to be a problem where there'd be a lawsuit. That was the third thing I was going to bring up earlier, that you are the first person who's mentioned this standard to me of only wanting to live in a, or rent a place that you personally would want to live in. I just think that's a really interesting, good standard. Um, when did that come about for you exactly? After I had the, the trashy house that was the one that I didn't want to live in, um, I kind of made that rule after that, yeah. Uh, and I've just found, I've found a lot greater success. I've seen better appreciation with it, um, easier to rent, those types of things. Do you have to pay a little bit more upfront? Yeah, we're not buying houses for $25,000. We're not buying houses for $40,000. A lot of our properties cost somewhere between seventy dollars and $150,000. That's kind of like the sweet spot right there. But they're good single-family houses or multifamily um, duplexes. Are those numbers pretty average for across the United States? I mean, I realized if we lived in a super hot real estate market or the wealthiest county in the United States, those numbers would not apply. But just looking broadly, either across the Midwest, I mean, is that is that a good house? Can I get a good house for seventy to one hundred fifty thousand? In the Midwest, yes. Inside Johnson County, you're no. pushing it. Right. <laughs> That's uh, that would be a tall task. So I actually don't own any properties in Johnson County. Um, they're in surrounding metropolitan areas, but um, yeah, I, I would love to invest in 
the Johnson County area because I think it's awesome. Appreciation is uh -huh. fantastic. There's like a shortage of housing. Um, my neighbors throw a sign up in their yard. Five minutes later, they have 74 offers and 20,000 over asking price. Like obviously, this is a great place to have it, but um, it costs an arm. It, it's actually, unless you find a good deal on a multiplex, um, renting a house really isn't worth because if your average house is $250,000, the 1% rule is going to say you need to rent that out for $2,500, but if you can only rent it out for <laughs> if you only rent it out for $1,800, then you're better off buying a $100,000 house that rents out for $1,000. You're going to cash flow a lot better on that. And then if it sits for a month, how far behind are you? You know, you're, everything, everything starts turning um, differently. So um, I've just found a lot of success within that, like, Seventy to one hundred fifty thousand dollar range, and it's going to go up. It keeps on going up every year, but yeah. Well, I come from a smaller town, and I think those numbers would be very, very typical where I grew up, and I just really appreciated growing up in a smaller town, and just I, you know, love and adore small town residents. Uh, my parents still live in a small town, and I just I, I can really kind of see everything you're saying play out just from my own personal life. Um, just for people to know, Johnson County is, I looked it up, the 81st wealthiest county in the United States. And that's why all these statistics that Mike was describing earlier uh, apply. There are 3,141 counties in the United States. So we are in the top 3% in terms of uh, just, I, I guess, per capita income. And so that's, that's probably what's driving a lot of these real estate Situations. So Johnson County is like the California, of, right? Because <laughs> California investors, it's I mean the property values there are so ridiculous that they don't buy investment properties; they buy homes to live in um, and appreciate and so on and so forth. But they don't actually buy investment properties now. They've started people from New York or Miami or Los Angeles have actually started buying if they want to get into real estate. They've started buying properties in the Midwest, oh. hiring a good property manager, and then cash flowing their their properties from there because they're a lot more affordable than, you know, what one three bedroom, two bath ranch house costs $200,000 here, it might cost $900,000 in San Diego. Oh, she just doesn't even seem possible within my world, but that's, say lovey. Those numbers don't work. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me, they don't. Um, so let me ask if uh, you could cash flow $300 a month on a rental property. What are the other ways to make money with houses? Uh, I'll probably leave something out, but you have appreciation. Yeah. So typical appreciation um, is somewhere between 2 and 3% on your house in the Midwest per year. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, so you have appreciation, you have cash flow. You can make repairs and you could finish an attic to add another bedroom and bathroom. You could finish a basement to add more living space. You could put a deck on the back. You could do a um, covered parking garage. You could pour a slab of concrete for a patio, all sorts of different things to add value to that house or um, rental property. Um, you actually get depreciation, which is kind of a funny thing, but an awesome thing. So even though your asset in your business is appreciating in value, you actually get to write off part of it as depreciation off of your taxes. So you can actually save tax dollars that way, which is another awesome way. Um, 
Yeah, and then I forgot the other one. There's another one too. <laughs> but that's quite oh, a lot. And, oh, and you're paying down. So if you have a mortgage on it, you're paying down and you're building equity by paying down your principal each month. So even though my property cash flowed 300, well, I might've paid another $250 down on my mortgage. So really that was like me making $550, but I just won't know that until I either refinance, pull money out or go to sell it. Right, now all of these again sound like long-term plans. Yeah, 100%. Okay, now you're, you're a teacher and you're a coach and uh, the average teacher in the United States, I think makes uh, the median income in the United States, which uh, just depending upon what you read is maybe about fifty to $60,000 a year. Uh, a lot of teachers make less than that. A few teachers make more than that. Uh, so this does seem like a long-term plan for you real estate-wise. What, what is your long-term plan? I would like to get to a point where basically, and I feel like I'm pretty close, every two years I can go out and buy another property I'm, and not using any of my money. My wife and I are very good at using our own money. Okay, we've mastered that. Okay. Um, but I want to use the cash flow from the rentals to make payment. I don't want to have to put any more money into it. I, I just want to use that money to, to buy more property. So the idea would be make enough money over two years some cash flow so that we can put a down payment. We'll take on another mortgage. That's okay because we're buying it you know, 25% down. Um, and then we're going to cash flow some more. Yeah, we'll be there in just a second. Um, sorry, you might have to cut this part out. <laughs> can you give me just a few minutes to answer these questions? Maybe go, go ask mommy. Okay. Something on backwards. I think her underwear is on backwards or something. <laughs> Who knows? She's a mess. Um, all right. So where, where, where were we? Okay. So basically, the plan as of right now is every two years, if I can cash flow enough money inside of the rental business to make another down payment to acquire another property, and then I'll have another, hopefully, two, three hundred dollars cash flow, save up every two years, buy a home. If I'm forty, by the time I'm 54, 55, I should have, what is that, 14, 7, I should have somewhere in the neighborhood of like 13, 15 properties by 55. Okay. And then I think that number, if my math is correct, should be able to replace my income into a time to where if, if I don't want to teach when I'm 55 years old, I don't have to teach. I don't have to really do anything. I can go play golf all day if I want to go play golf. I'm sure I'd be way too bored to do that, but maybe I want to be my own property manager and I can give myself a job at that point. Maybe I want to start a landscape business and cut. And guess what? I already have 15, 15 yards to cut right off of the bat. So right. I, can, I can start my own business doing that. Maybe I want to start a painting company and I have 15 you know, interior, exterior painting jobs. I, whatever it could be. Um, or go do something totally different or substitute teach or go work for Catholic Charities, whatever I decide to do, I think I think that would just be really cool to have that freedom. Yeah, yeah, financial freedom. That, that's what I really see. Once you have enough passive income to replace your income, I, I feel like that's actually being financially free. Then you can really be free to do whatever you want. If not, you still have to show up for your job. That's right, that's right. And just your job just seems a lot more sweet to me if you don't have to show up, but if you want to show up. Mm. Well said. Yeah. Maybe we just do a better job if we don't distort our thinking about how to please everybody, but instead maybe we're thinking 
how do I do the right thing? How do I serve everybody instead of how do I please everybody? And of course, financial freedom would allow a person to do something like that. Yeah, I feel like when you add financial stress on anything, it makes makes everything so much more difficult. Absolutely. So, okay, so let me see if I understand the plan. The plan is to have somewhere between 13 and 15 properties, perhaps within the next 14, 15 years, mm -hmm. something along those lines, that would probably replace your regular income. And at that point, you are free to work, free to play, free to do pretty much anything. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Okay, uh, and then I guess a related question is there's different philosophies on how much we should pay off if we're going to buy a rental property. Uh, there's the uh, paid for real estate philosophy of Dave Ramsey, who's pretty hardcore anti-debt. There is the cash flow model of Robert Kiyosaki, where I'm not sure how much he recommends leaving inside of a house. Maybe you know. Uh, how much do you think you should leave percentage-wise inside of a house? To just sort of mitigate risk. Yeah, I, so I have I have a property that's fully paid off, but I also have mortgages on property. So I have kind of a mix in there. Some I own, you know, I have 50% of the equity, the bank has the other 50. Others, I, you know, bought one last year that I paid 25% down, so I'm like at 25.5%. You know how right. on a 30 year mortgage, how much right. interest you pay for the first year, I basically paid no principal. Um, so I have it all over the spectrum and I think that, I think that's good, but that's just my comfort level. I like having, when you have a property that's completely paid off, it's going to cash flow a lot higher because you're not paying six, seven, eight hundred dollars to, mm -hmm. to the uh, mortgage every month. Um, so that allows for, um, more cash flow. Could I refinance that out, borrow against it and go buy three more properties with down payments? I probably could, but I like the fact, what if something goes majorly wrong? Like this whole, the coronavirus thing. Right. Like what happens if all of my renters lost their jobs in all six places, I had to make all of those mortgage payments for six months, nine months, a year? Right. Well, I would like to think since I had savings set up and I didn't spend all my money, that, that it would be okay. It would suck, but it would be okay. And I like having that, like that gives me peace of mind knowing that if an air conditioner goes out, if a roof needs to be replaced, it sucks writing that check. But it's okay, because I have the money there, I'm still cash flowing, like I think there's a sweet spot. I wouldn't go all the way in and borrow all the money that I possibly could, like if a bank's willing to give me more money than I should, then I'm gonna take it. I don't like that philosophy, but also I don't like the, Actually, I would love to have all my properties free and clear. Right. But I know if I had that, I'd be buying more. You know. <laughs> so I, I think there's a happy medium in between. But a lot of it's just like um, when you go to set up your four hundred one k. The one of the first things they ask you: Are you an aggressive investor? Are you moderate? Or you know? And that's so each person's going to be a little bit different. Kiyosaki's on one side of the spectrum. Right. Ramsey's on the other. I'm somewhere in between. Probably a little bit closer to Kiyosaki, but definitely not all the way there. Okay, so if you had 10 properties with 0% down on all of them, would that just freak you out? I would not like that. Okay. Uh, Probably not. Now, again, it all depends on how they cash flow. If they cash flow like crazy, sweet, let's do it all day long. But usually they don't. Usually they don't with 0% down. Would you do that and uh, just sort of hold your breath and just hope that we don't have another crash of 08 or another coronavirus crash? Um, or, gosh, in my lifetime, gosh, we've had the crash of 87, we had the dot-com bubble around the turn of the century. 
Uh, the whole 1970s was just stagflation. All mm-hmm. that was within my lifetime that I remember. Right. Uh, I mean, sometimes you have the glory years like the 80s and the 90s, um, and a bunch of other times you don't. <laughs> so uh, if, if you did that, would you just be holding your breath and just paying as much down as you could if times were good? I would be probably saving a good amount for some type of like correction or emergency. I'd be putting money in, into the bank to, to save for an emergency for sure. Gotcha. So has this conversation made you sort of pin down in your mind some sort of range or percent that you would like to have invested on an average in your properties? Like I'd like to always be at least 20% paid down or 50% uh, yeah, I don't, paid down. I don't buy a property that's not 20% down. And okay. just the time I get conventional financing, most likely I'm not big on hard money loans because I don't like paying 15%. I get a much better rate from the bank. <laughs> if I put 20% down, I know I'm going to be in that five to 6% range right now, which is awesome. Um, and then if I buy a multifamily, they require conventional financing requires 25% down on a multifamily residence. So that I do conventional financing. So I always have 20% equity in the, in the properties. Okay. I think I just have one more question along these lines is how sweet of a deal would have to come along for you to throw a bunch of your caution to the wind? Can you give me an example? A house comes along and it just seems like this thing is maybe 15% under everything else in the neighborhood and I inspect it and it looks just absolutely fantastic and there's just nothing wrong with it and so this place is easy to rent. Just something that just looks like, wow, that's a sweet, sweet, sweet deal. You know, it's taken me a long time for me to actually be able to say this because usually I'd be like, oh my gosh, I have to buy it, whatever I have to do, I gotta Uh get it, right? But the truth is, like after seeing it, I feel like so many times you have the the fear of missing out on a deal, right? But the reality is, like, there's always going to be the next deal. The next deal is always going to be there. So, and if the if it looks too good to be true, it probably okay. is. There's probably something wrong with it. Like if you get a thing on Zillow that says there's a house in your neighborhood that's fifty thousand dollars under what your value is, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to buy it. I can, Tim, I've looked at these things over and over. It's either bank owned or there are, you know, cracks the size of the Amazon down in the basement foundation or Mm. water's been, we went into one house, it didn't say anything about water damage. I kid you not, you looked up and there was a skylight, not because there was a skylight supposed to be there, but because there was a giant hole in the roof. And then there was a hole in the floor where the water had been hitting the floor for so long that, I mean, it looked like a laser beam shot through this house. Um, and it didn't mention any of that on the listing. So no wonder it was $70,000 under market value. So these too good to be trues are too good to be true. Usually, usually it takes hard work and time. Something that might benefit people is I read a book called The Confidence Game, which was about con artists. That's where that word con comes from is confidence, man which is not a man with confidence, it's a man who's lying to you, essentially, a confidence con man. Well, the author had a PhD in psychology, and reviewers said it was the best book on con artists in 70 years. And she came to two conclusions which really startled me. And the first one is that absolutely every human being alive has been conned. You may think I'm the most skeptical person on earth, but her belief is every human being has been conned. And then the second thing is, is that she figured out who was most likely to get conned. 
And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I wonder if it's men or women or black people or Asian people or white people or, or just who is it? You know, is it young people? Is it old people? Is it smart people? Is it dumb people? And what she said was, it is desperate people. It's people who are down in their luck and they really could use a shot in the arm and instead what they get is a kick in the shins. So they need a whole bunch of money and somebody comes along with an offer where it looks too good to be true. And if you weren't desperate, you would tell yourself, that is too good to be true. And I guess it works in the romantic field as well. She gave this example of this 68-year-old Nobel Prize winning physicist. This man was a genius. Well, he was contacted by this 26-year-old, very attractive Russian girl who said, you know, I've always had a thing for 68-year-old award-winning <laughs> astrophysicists. And uh, he fell for it. He fell for it. And uh, he was going to marry this girl and just wire her all this money oh, first. No. And I think they're with the Nobel Prize money. And uh, I'm not even sure the person on the other end of the line was actually a Russian or a girl. I, we just, we have no idea. But I mean, the poor man was lonely. And, uh, you know, I guess the photos looked, you know, she seemed nice. So <laughs> he just, he went for it. So if a Nobel Prize winning physicist can get conned, then I, I think I can get conned. That's true. That's my, so desperation is the, uh, the number one factor, according to, the author's name was Maria Konnikova, which I thought was just That's a really great name, yeah. that her name was Konnikova. <laughs> so, uh, okay, let's see. I am just going to ask you one or two other quick questions. Um, if somebody left you a million dollars today, what would you do with the money? Invested in real estate? Is that too general? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, then I quit my job, go golfing. It sounds great. But you like your job. I know, I do like my job. You get like teacher of the year, you're probably going to be like feeling pretty dumb about quitting your job in about a year. Yeah, <laughs> so. I'd probably get pretty bored. Okay. Uh, let's see. I think I only have one other question, and it's this. Uh, I guess it's the, the rocking chair question again. So you're 100 years old, you're sitting on the rocking chair, uh, your lovely wife is holding your hands, you're surrounded by kids and grandchildren, and uh, somebody asks you about your life in real estate. So just specifically real estate, what are you most proud of that you've done over this, the span of your life? Um, well, the thing that really, the, that I love about real estate, like I also have a, a Roth IRA as well, right? been investing in that for a while and that's great I hope I never have to touch that money because when you take money out of a Roth IRA you see that you see that hopefully it's a bundle of money boatload of money you see that number start dwindling right and that's a number that's a that's a scarce resource you can run out of that money right what I, what I like about the real estate is with the cash flow it just keeps on coming. You don't have to sell the properties. This is just the profits made off of all of this. So I would actually like to get into a place where um, my wife and I could retire off of the passive income of the real estate and then we're not depleting any. Actually, we'd technically be becoming more wealthy because we would have, we'd be you know, gaining more equity in the property, we would be gaining appreciation, we'd have tax deductions, so on and so forth, all these great things and still be getting paychecks from and not have to sell. Um, so I think that would be really great. And then I would still, we'd still have the investments that we hopefully never have to use. If we did, it would be like, you know, whatever, fun money, I suppose. But the fact that we could give this, um, 
we could give this down to our children. Like my kids could take, if we got up to 15 properties, they could take 15 properties. And what if in their lifetime, they could turn the 15 properties into 30 properties. Mm. And then they could give it to their kids and their 30 properties could turn into 60 properties or 90 properties or whatever. And it could just grow into right. a place where potentially, like you just, again, money isn't causing problems for you anymore. It's helping you gain that, that time, the time to spend with your family, the time to, you know, do fun things, the time to take a day off of work because you don't need that hundred dollars or $250, whatever you make in a day. If you want to go camping with your kids for a week, you know, just, I, I think giving that gift of time to future generations could be, could be really, really cool. Yeah. Hopefully they look back on great grandpa and say, thank you. That'd be nice. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so very much. This has just been absolutely awesome. And I hope we do this again soon. For sure. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The two biggest favors you could do for me would be for you to share this podcast with family and friends. The other big favor would be for you to check out my books that are on Amazon. I have two thrillers and a teen money book. Until next time.